Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Now we, um, if you've been here following along with us, we are going through the Apostles' Creed and kind of unpacking what it means to uh, have the fundamentals of what it means to be a Christian and what it's like to live those fundamentals out. Um, It's important that we know what we believe and the power that comes from that. Now we are backtracking a little bit because last week it we, we was Easter, right? And so I really wanted to preach the resurrection on Easter. So we looked at the, the part of the creed where it talks about he was suffered under Pontius Pilate, right? That's the crucifixion. He died, was buried, descended into hell. We talked about the Abraham's bosom and the, that whole confusing thing that, that we don't know if we could say that part, but we do say that Jesus, that Jesus descended into the land of the dead, right? But then on the third day, he rose from the grave. And, and when he rose from, that grave, from the grave, it brought all this, this resurrection power that we have more than forgiveness, that we can live out that power. It also meant that, that everything that Jesus claimed was true. Right, like if he would have stayed dead, then all the stuff about him being God and all the things about him saying sins are forgiven and all the the message that Jesus preached, if he didn't raise from the dead, that wasn't true. So so this fact that that Jesus rose from the grave gives power and truth to his claims. But what did Jesus claim? What did he claim about himself that was so profound, that was so... uh, huge that it got him killed. What did he claim? And I think that's, that's what I want to uh, talk about today as we approach the part of the creed where we backtrack to the beginning of this part about Jesus where it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So when we look at that, we see that, the, that we kind of have this foundation. This is who Jesus is. If you look at what the New Testament refers to Jesus as most often, it's the Christ, right? It's the Messiah. Christ was not Jesus' last name, okay? His, <laughs> that was the title that was given to him, meaning the anointed one or the Messiah, right? And that's what all throughout the Old Testament, or all throughout the New Testament, and the, the letters, the epistles, the gospels, the, the, over and over again, they refer to Jesus as the Christ, But you know that Jesus not one time referred to himself as Christ? 
Now, he used a lot of different titles, but the one title that Jesus claimed over and over again, more than anything else when talking about himself, like if Jesus said, hey, you know what? I have a lot of nicknames. This is the one that I want you to call me, right? So people at work, I get called Jorge a lot. I get called George of the Jungle, right? But if we had the ability to pick our own nickname, what people called us, Jesus over and over and over again referred to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man. To kind of illustrate what this means, uh, just this past week, we uh, watched the movie Tarzan. Now, if you haven't seen Tarzan, I'm sure you have, right? This movie came out when I was a kid. But that soundtrack, Phil Collins, I mean, come on. That soundtrack is amazing. But we were on the way back, and I, the song was stuck in my head, so we listened to the soundtrack. And that's all it took for Addie Lee to be hooked, right? So then we got home, we watched the movie, and, man, it's great, right? But in the, in the movie, Tarzan is referred to as, son of, as the son of man, right? And so there's this, there's even the song titled The Son of Man. But it's this fact that he's there amongst all these gorillas, but he is human. Son of man is, is, is human, so when we look at this, path, at this part of uh, the Apostles' Creed, we see a couple big things. We see that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, but he was born of the Virgin Mary. So we have this, this sense that Jesus was fully God, right? So if you go back to, to Genesis and we talk about the fact that, uh, that sin, because of Adam and Eve's sin, we all have a sin nature, right? And for Jesus to be perfect and sinless, he couldn't have that nature, so there's this sense of the, the Holy Spirit conceiving him means that he didn't have the, the human seed in him. So there, there, the, there's the sense that Jesus is fully, 100% divine. He is God. We look at the Bible. He is there from the beginning of time. We see him in Genesis. And we see it, whenever we see the Trinity, God, Jesus is there. But yet he is human. He does have the, the seed of man because he was born of a human being, right? Mary. There's only two people mentioned in the Apostle Creed, Apostles' Creed. That's Mary and Pontius Pilate, right? So, so when we talk about this, this being born of Mary, we have to see that he has this 100% humanity about him. So Jesus is both 100% God and 100% human. And there's this, this beautiful mystery that comes with being a Christian and following this Jesus God man, right? That, that we kind of unpacks. And so when we talk about, when Jesus talks about son of man, that's what he's pointing to. He's saying that I am, I am the king. I am Jesus. I am human. I am God. I am Jesus king. And so what I kind of want to point out is get into is, is figure out why he uses this son of man title, where it comes from. So you got to understand that in Jesus' time, he, he's walking around, he performs miracles. He talks about, he calls himself son of man. The people that are around him, that are hearing him say this title about himself, they know the Old Testament scripture. And so Jesus, when he's saying son of man, he's actually pulling all the hearers. And even now as, as Bible readers and studiers, he's pulling us in to this passage in the Old Testament where the son of man title originates. And that's in Daniel chapter seven. So I think that, that, that this is, when we're talking about Jesus and what he calls himself, what the message he wants to bring across, we have to go back to Daniel seven where the son of man title originates and unpack what's going on there. Now, here's the uh, the warning, right? This is what we call 
apocalyptic literature. Okay, so Daniel is in Babylon and he is having a dream. All right, and he writes down what this dream is, and it's bizarre, okay? It's bizarre, and it's weird, and there's lots of terminology and symbolism and things we might not understand, but I want to, and you got to understand too, that people literally have dedicated their lives to studying Daniel, just the book of Daniel, and just the apocalyptic parts of Daniel. So what I'm doing this morning is very surface level, highlighting a couple things that I think are, are important to the Son of Man title. So I'm going to read a pretty hefty portion of Daniel chapter 7 and unpacked a lot of what's going on and I think is what the message that Jesus is wanting to get across when he says, I am the son of man. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to attempt to read this without uh, fumbling all over the, uh, the terminology, but here it goes. <clears throat> In the first year, oh look, the first word is, is right. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. Visions passed through his mind, and he was lying as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had wings of an eagle. And I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted up from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being. The and then the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It raised up on one of its sides, and, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked and, and there before me was another beast and one that looked like a leopard. And, it, and on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. The beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was a fourth beast. Terrifying, frightening, and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, and it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all other beasts, and it had ten horns. And while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like a, like a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. The river of fire was flowing from, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court was seated, and the books were opened. And then I continued to watch because the boastful words of the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of all their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days, and he was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power, and all nations, peoples of every language, worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. <laughs> no matter how bizarre, confusing it may be at times, we thank you that you have preserved it for all of these years, that it is alive and breathing, that it speaks to us. I pray now as we unpack this passage, as we unpack what it means to, to follow the Son of Man, I pray that it would be your words and not mine, that you would speak through me, and if it would not be of you, that it would fall on deaf ears, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so, so there's a lot going on here, right? A lot of beast and ancient of days, which is a phrase, but it actually appears to mean a person. And you've got the son of man and there's these thrones and there's all this stuff going on. And so what I kind of want to do before we jump into the, I guess the outline of the message, I want to highlight a couple of the, of the symbolism, a couple of the symbols that we see here. All right, the first one are the thrones, Right, we see that there's these thrones that the Ancient of Days, that is another one that's God. Okay, so this is the <laughs> Daniel's way of saying that God's not, this is God the Father, right? We, we know what God the Father is because we have Jesus who is the reflection of God, but in this, this passage, he's labeled as a phrase. He's the great I am. He's greater and bigger than, this is what we talked about week one, right? The 800 pound gorilla that can sit wherever it wants. And so Daniel uses this phrase, ancient of days, and he's sitting on his throne, but he looks and there's other thrones. There's a throne that's empty. There's nobody on it. And this is pointing us back to the biblical narrative, kind of going back to Genesis, right? Where God creates humans in his image to rule and subdue all of the earth, man and woman together ruling the world. That they're ruling royalty, throne, that's what's going on here, right? He's pointing us back to this, but, there, but there's a problem because the throne is empty. And so that takes us back, okay, well, why is the throne, why would there be a throne? Well, if we go back to that story, something happens, right? The humans are created as royalty, as, as ruling the world with God in partnership, but then there's a beast, and that beast tempts humans, right? The serpent in the tree. So you see here, there's another thing, another part of the symbolism I want to unpack is the beast in here. Now, there's this, this picture that's being drawn, and I want to make this as less confusing as possible because it's, it can go really deep. There's a big rabbit, rabbit hole here, but these beasts are, it's kind of like temptation. It's kind of like sin. And then there's this chance for, for humans to rule the beast or to be ruled by the beast, and so there's this moment in Genesis where the beast tempts humans and they give in. And from that point on, you kind of see this biblical narrative where you have beast ruling humans. And, and even it talks about this, this one that's more terrifying and more frightening than any of the other, that there's a lot of um, people who are smarter than me who are thinking that this beast is, is actually Babylon, where Daniel is currently in prison, where Daniel is currently trapped in Babylon. So this beast represents the evil in the world. And there's this sense that human beings can rule and be over, or they could be under and be ruled by this evil. So there's this picture, there's this narrative that's been laid out. And so you got to think, as someone who has knows this part of Daniel, as someone who's been either our, in our time who studied the Bible and has read this, or people who know it in Jesus' time, when they hear Jesus say the Son of Man, they picture this part of Daniel where there's an empty throne. And they've been waiting their whole life for the person that's going to fill that throne, right? They've been saying, you know what? There's a human, we see it promised in our 
Bible, there's a human that's going to come and he's going to sit, he's going to reunite us in God. He's going to reunite that partnership. He's going to reunite us being a part of this royal priesthood, right? This is all terminology that's talked about in the Bible. And there's this time where we're, where we're going to be reunited back inside of this ruling over evil, ruling, and, and, and they're waiting for that person. And they read their Bible and they hear these stories. And this, this is the, when I say the Bible, this is their old, this is our Old Testament, what they're studying. And they see that, you know what? Maybe it's Abraham, but it's not Abraham. Maybe it's, maybe it's before Abraham, maybe it's Cain, but no, Cain is, kills his brother. He's ruled by the beast. Maybe it's Jacob. No, Jacob falls. Isaac? No. Moses. Now Moses, that is a hero of the faith, but he didn't even get to enter the promised land. Not Moses. What about, what about King David? King David, we talked about Chronicles a couple of weeks ago, right? But it's not King David. There's this, this human that all of these people are pointing to that's going to be perfect, that's going to fill this gap, that's going to pay that price, that's going to reunite us with God. And when Jesus says, I am the son of man, what is he doing? He's proclaiming, I am that human. I am that human that's going to reunite us, reunite humans with God. And at the end, it says that his dominion is everlasting, that it will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He is now talking, this points to the divinity of God, right? He is ruling, he's in charge, he's above all. God is 100% God, 100% man. So we've got that symbolism. We see all this going on inside of this passage of Daniel. And there's a lot going on here. And you can I challenge you, read it, study it, find some other resources, see what they say. But that's, the, that's what I wanna highlight because I think that gets us to this message uh, that helps us see this part of the Apostles' Creed and all that it means to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, born, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And so the first point in our outline is this, that Jesus is the whole story. Jesus is the whole story. And we see that Jesus, when he says, I am son of man, we see the themes in this part of Daniel that goes from Genesis to Revelation. We know we're going to talk about this in the uh, resurrection of the body part of this creed, but we know that in the, the end times, the end days, that there's going to be a resurrection of all people, that the, the world we live in is going to become a new creation, that, that heaven is not this inferior place that we're going to go to floating in the sky, but heaven is going to be right here with a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to be here and Jesus is going to be reigning on his throne so bright that he is the light of the city that lights up the whole world and so Jesus is he's from the beginning to the end we see that we're created in the image of God well we have this tendency especially in the in American faith to reduce the gospel to what we talked about last week in that salvation moment we, we take the gospel, now believe me, salvation is 100% part of the gospel. Being saved is part of the gospel, but it's just part of it. The whole gospel is the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. We go and we have to keep in mind the Genesis and, and all the people that, that have failed before us and all the people that have succeeded before us and, and that lead up to Jesus dying on the cross, raising from the grave, going all the way to Revelation when he returns. The, the whole Bible, the whole story is the gospel. Jesus is the king. That's who we're worshiping. That's why we say, I believe, Jesus Christ, his only son, the Messiah, the anointed one, means he's from the, the whole thing what happens is what happens is when we reduce the gospel to just salvation 
there's a couple things, there's several things that happen. What I want to highlight is this. The first thing is that we create culture in the church, and listen, we see it now, especially in America, where we see 50, 100, 1,000 people saved on a Sunday in these churches. But then last, a couple weeks ago, uh, Gallup came out with a poll where they asked people who claimed to be Christians what the Great Commission was. And here's the deal. <laughs> was it 83% of those who said they were Christians couldn't tell you what the Great Commission is? And I couldn't believe this, that 17 people said, I know what the Great Commission is and hear what it is. 17% said, yes, and hear what it is. Now, there was all kinds of scales. Some people said, I've heard of it, but I can't exactly tell you what it is. Some people said, no, I don't even, never even heard of it. But 83% couldn't tell you what it is. Let me just say this, okay? I don't want to guilt you into if you don't know what the Great Commission is because what happened is I, I read this and I began asking all the people in my circles that I wasn't close to but were Christians. And 100% of them didn't know what it was. So if you don't know what it is, that's fine, okay? But I'm gonna tell you right now because as your pastor, I can't let you keep going and not know what the Great Commission is. The Great Commission comes from Matthew 28, Verse 18, it says this, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The Great Commission is our job as the church to worship and follow Jesus and to go tell others to do the same teaching, baptizing, discipling. That's the Great Commission. And we as the church are supposed to live that out. But what happens when we make the this gospel just salvation is you get a lot of people who have had that one-time experience where they went to the altar and their hearts were warmed and they had this emotional moment and they got saved, but, but they live like hell every other day of the week. If we're gonna be Bible-believing, Jesus-following Christians, we have to understand that salvation is vitally important. That is a part of what we're, we should reach our neighbors. We should see our loved ones follow Jesus, surrender their life to him. But it's so much more. It's so much more than just being saved. It's about being discipled. It's about learning and following Jesus. There's another thing that happens when we reduce the gospel to just being salvation. And, I, and I've actually had some, some conversations where I've seen this happen more uh, recently than in the past. But what we do is we don't just diminish discipleship. What we also do is we create outcasts of those who were raised in the church. And here's what I mean. I've heard pastors stand in the pulpit and say, you need to have the date and time that you were saved. When was that moment that you gave it all to Jesus? When was that moment when you became, when was that moment that you had that Paul on the road to Damascus where the Lord shined bright and he just immediately started following? And they preached this thing that if you don't have that moment, you are not saved. But the truth is, the truth is, I hope to raise my daughters in a way where they don't have that moment. That when they look back at their whole life, they've been following Jesus as long as they can remember. And I look at my own story and I, and I can tell that there's been times where I've bought into this teaching and I've tried to create these moments where that's happened, where, where you know, when I was like five years old, I saw a play and I went to the altar and I prayed and I've kind of called that my salvation moment, but I couldn't tell you that date and time. I just remember seeing that and, and honestly not wanting to go to hell. So I'd be like, okay, God, save me, right? But then I can also know that, that 
following Jesus is more than not wanting to go to hell, right? But that was kind of the the foundation of my faith. But I can remember being in my room and praying and reading my Bible and not wanting people to know because I felt like I was too young to do that, right? But So I'm assuming at that point I was saved. But then there's a point in college where I'm at a worship night and the Lord just absolutely breaks me and I fall deeper in love with God than than I've ever been at any point in my life. And there's just this sense of real relationship of me and God just being together. And then fast forward, even to where I'm at in my faith right now, I feel like I'm at a deeper place with my, my prayer and my study with God than I've ever been in my life. And there's, this, there's these points in my, in my life where I feel like I've fallen deeper in love with who Jesus is and deeper in love with God. But when was I saved? Was it that, that five-year-old moment? Was it when I was in college? Was it recently? I don't think so. Right, so there's this sense of... the. There's so many people who don't have that date and time for when they got saved. But when we create a culture where salvation is the whole gospel, they, those people miss out on that, that, that gospel. They miss out on the whole story because they think, I can't identify with that. But when we look at the Bible, there's more than just Paul's story. Look at Peter. Peter, who got called by Jesus, was a disciple, but then later betrayed him. But then there's a moment on the, the, the shore where God says, you know what, feed my fish. And there's, he says it three times. And Peter remembers the fact that he denied Jesus three times and there's this big moment and then we have the upper room moment and now Peter's like proclaiming the gospel preaching to to thousands and thousands of people he ends up being crucified and he wants to be crucified upside down because he can't die like God so he doesn't want to die like Jesus he doesn't feel worthy when did Peter get saved what at which one of those moments was his salvation moment what we have to understand is that the gospel is the whole story we can't reduce it to just salvation because when we reduce it to just salvation, we can check that box, we can say we're saved, we can have go to church on Sunday and live like hell the rest of the week. Following Jesus is more than just checking the salvation box. We have to realize that we have that there's a growing in Jesus, there's a growing in discipleship and being nurtured and having this changing our life. And that's another thing that I want to point out. I think Jesus is pointing about pointing out when he says, I am the Son of Man. Because not only is he the whole story, but Jesus is also the king, right? He's the one sitting on this throne, this picture of royalty, this, this fact that people worshiping, are worshiping him forever. And if we think about what it means to, to be a king, we think about what it means to follow him, we realize that, that Jesus achieves his royalty not by ruling and uh, dictating everybody, but by giving up his own life. In Matthew 26, 64, Jesus says this. He's, there's, we read about the courtroom, right, in Daniel. There's a courtroom in Daniel. Then there's a courtroom at the end of Jesus' life before he gets crucified. He's in that courtroom. So you can see this picture, courtroom in Daniel, courtroom here in Matthew. He talks about that title, Son of Man. He says, but I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's talking about that scene in Daniel. That courtroom in Daniel, that Son of Man you see there, is me. And that happens when I go to the cross. We we talked about last week how torturous and evil the cross was. And we look at the cross, we look at the crucifixion, we think about how bad it was, but Jesus looked at that cross and he saw his throne. He saw his throne. So, So when Jesus's execution was really his exaltation, when Jesus saw that, when he gave his life, he became the king, he became the ruler. He is now the one, that was the day, N.T. Wright says this, that was the day the revolution began. 
That was the day that love defeated all. That was the day that the price was paid. And now we serve and we follow this king. And so you want to know if you're saved. You want to know if you're saved, whether you had that salvation moment or whether you've kind of grown up in the faith. The way you know you're saved, are you following the king? Do you, do you listen to him? Are you worshiping him? N.T. Wright in another one of his books has a great illustration. He talks about Josephus, right? And this is a real person. Josephus lived in the same century as Jesus, the same century that uh, the book of Mark was written. Mark 1.15 says this, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So when N.T. Wright points to this statement in Mark, and he says those words, repent and believe, actually have a military um, dimension to them, a royalty political dimension to them. And he points to this story uh, that Josephus writes about in his writing. So this is a true story, but Josephus was a... Um, advisor to the a political advisor and there had been this rebel group that kind of raised up and were, were coming to, they were actually the leader was attempting to kill Josephus right so you got this rebel group trying to take over Rome and they start by going after this political advisor they're trying to take his life and so Josephus avoids the danger right they're unsuccessful at killing him and so he raises up this mighty military force and goes to where the rebels are at <clears throat> He goes to where they're hiding and he surrounds them. So he's got this huge military force surrounding the rebels. They're outnumbered. They're outgunned, if you will. And he calls the rebel leader out. He calls the rebel leader out to himself. And he writes in his book, this is what he says when he's writing about the event. He says this, I was not a stranger to the treacherous design that he had against me. However, I would forgive him for what he had done already if he would repent and to be faithful to me hereafter. And thus upon his promise to do all that I desired, I let him go. Those words used by Josephus could very easily be talked about in the same way that these words are used in Mark. Repent and believe. Jesus is saying, listen, you, this is what it means. This is what salvation is. You want to know what's required of salvation? It's to repent and believe. It's to turn from where you're at and follow Jesus. It's to live in his way. It's to do what, I mean, that's it. You and all your buddies have, have raised up as rebels against God. And he's saying, look, all you have to do is turn around and follow me. And Jesus gives that call. So when you're thinking about trying to figure out what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to declare, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, you're looking and you're saying, I repent of where I was and now I follow you. There's a calling, there's a, there's a, a weight to that. Salvation is free, but it requires surrender and it requires repentance. And that's really, really hard. And that leads me to the third point. And that's that getting to heaven, that's that being in relationship, that's believing in Jesus, that repenting, it all revolves and starts with Jesus. He is the way. So if we're looking at the outline, we've got Jesus is the whole story, Jesus is the king, and Jesus is the way. By pointing to this dream, Jesus is saying, I am the human you are waiting on. I am the God that you are waiting on. In John 14, 6, he says this, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's this, um, there can be at times turmoil when culture 
and Christianity kind of meet and clash. And so what I've discovered is that whenever that happens, I've had conversations where I talk about Jesus being the only way and people being completely fine with it, right? But kind of the, the narrative that we see in culture is that culture is not fine with the exclusivity of Jesus. When we say Jesus is the only way, if you put it out just on social media, on Twitter or Facebook or something like that, it gets a lot of, of backlash because honestly, the way our culture is set up right now, if you're a good person, you're doing all right, right? Like Jesus can't be the only way. What about the good people who didn't follow Jesus? So there's this sense of this exclusivity of Jesus that kind of rubs people the wrong way. And I really don't understand that because Jesus declares that he is the truth. He declares that he is the way and everything he claimed is true because he rose from the dead. So there's this sense of there's truth in that. That's what we believe as Christians, but I don't understand why people get all up in arms about it. And, and J.D. Walt says that he kind of illustrates it like this, but he says, what if, what if you are diagnosed with cancer, right? And you're told that your cancer only has one cure. What is your reaction? It's not to argue with that. It's not to say, well, well, I, that's not right. I'm, I'll go eat some fruit and some vegetables and I'll get over that. No, it's to rejoice. We're, we're, we're glad that our life is now gonna be stretched beyond our cancer diagnosis because there is one cure, And Jesus is here and he's saying, look, that cancer, that sin diagnosis that you have, I am the one cure. It should create in us worship and following of him. But instead, there's this backlash. We want to push back against it. He's not withholding the cure. He's offering it to anybody and everybody. It says in John 1 that he is the light to all men. John 3, 16, whosoever should believe in him. It's for everyone. And God is saying, this cure is for everyone. But the problem is, and I think this is why we get pushback. Pushback comes from that part where Jesus is king. Because in order for that to happen, in order for us to accept the cure, we have to get ourselves off of that throne. And we think, okay, yeah, Jesus needs to rule my life. But that's really hard. Because there's times where we know we're right and we know they're wrong and I'm going to be on my throne and I'm going to have this righteous anger because they're wrong. And God is saying, no, the way you sit on your throne is not by ruling and yelling and being mean. The way you sit on your throne is by giving your life up. He painted the picture. That's what it means to, to follow Jesus as the way, as the king, is to live like him. It's to take ourselves off the throne. And that hurts. I talked about it a few weeks ago when Jesus says that if your right hand causes you to sin, you should remove it. There's real pain in taking ourselves off of the throne. Last week, you talked about how the, the gospel was bad news before it's good news. And that's because that bad news means we have to repent. It means we have to remove that sin and that evil from our lives. It's not easy. And I think that's why the culture gets mad when we say Jesus is the only way. Because if Jesus is the only way, it means that I can't rule my life. I have to surrender, repent, and follow him. And it's all in love. Because Jesus did that first. He didn't rule by saying, follow me, do what I said. He, He said, follow me because I gave my life for you. I gave my life for you. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus fulfills all of it. So when we declare these words, when we say that I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, what we're saying is I believe that Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the son of man. 
He's the only son that, gave, that God gave to pay for our sins. He is our Lord. He is our King that we love and we worship. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, 100% man, 100% God, defeated the grave, and we have life in him. But that calls us, it calls us to a higher humanity, to rule over the beasts of our lives by giving our life to Jesus and surrender. That's what we mean when we say, I believe in Jesus Christ. He is Jesus Lord. Is Jesus Lord. We're talking about the Apostles' Creed. One of the first creeds we see in Christianity comes from Philippians, where it says, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Is that the rule? Is that what rules your life? Or are you sitting on the throne? We have to live out of repentance and surrender and following him. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll step over, and we'll, we'll do the Apostles' Creed together. Heavenly Father, we thank you 